Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me as per Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew Stockton. Why is your microphone so much bigger than mine? Uh, I have, uh, it's called a chaotica eyeball. <laughs> Size queen. Yet, no, it's <laughs> it's just a, essentially it's just a foam ball that goes around the... I, w- I want a foam ball. Yeah, but <laughs> this is something we'll talk about later. Anyway. Let's do the show. Yes. Mine is bigger than yours. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On May 8, 1984, a man with a beard dressed in Canadian Forces camouflage attire and wearing a beret entered the studios of CJRP, a radio station in Quebec City. Employees at the station noticed the man had a knife secured to his leg. The man approached the assistant to radio host Andre Arthur and presented her with an envelope while introducing himself as Mr. D and then promptly left. The man, later identified as Denis Lorty, a 25-year-old disgruntled Canadian Forces corporal, then entered the Citadel de Québec in Quebec City to commit a mass shooting of members of the National Assembly of Quebec. He opened fire, killing three unelected legislature employees, Georges Boyer, 61, Camille Lepage, 54, and Roger Lefrancois, 57. He injured 13 others before being apprehended thanks to the heroism of René-Marc Jalbert, a retired Canadian Forces officer and the sergeant-at-arms of the National Assembly of Quebec. Lorty's actions shocked the nation and prompted discussions on security measures and political extremism. Jalbert's actions earned him the Cross of Valor, Canada's highest civilian bravery award. This is Dark Poutine, episode 275, the 1984 Quebec National Assembly shooting. The story of how Denis Lorty came into the world is rough. One Saturday afternoon, Lorty's father, Paul Eugene, in an uncontrollable rage, had ripped through the family's house, screaming and smashing everything. At the same time, Colette, his wife, watched terrified and powerless to stop the tirade. Paul Eugene tore up important papers, including his driver's license and some money. After running out of steam, he plopped himself onto the kitchen floor amid the destruction, a blank look on his face. The next day, Paul Eugene claimed he didn't remember his destructive episode. The incident began after Colette told Paul Eugene that she was pregnant again, this time with their eighth child. The baby, born on May 10, 1959, would be Joseph Laurent Paul Denis, who they called Denis. 
Denis claimed his father had regularly beaten and sexually assaulted all eight of his children. Denis' abuse had begun when he was just eight months old. Lees later told author Dominique Fournier that Paul Eugene wanted to design a machine that would automatically beat his kids so he didn't have to exert himself. Denis had claimed his father would beat the children into unconsciousness. He hit his wife, too. The sexual abuse was terrible. Paul Eugene even fathered a child with one of his daughters, leading the girls to consider his murder. One of them eventually sought help from the police, leading to their father's conviction in 1969 and a subsequent three-year prison sentence. Following his release, he chose not to reunite with his family. After the divorce, Colette reverted to her maiden name to distance herself from him. Yeah, you know, the credibility of childhood stories by people who've committed crimes is inherently sort of questionable, isn't it? Yeah. They might lie. In this case, he had corroboration from his sisters. Yeah, so, you know, often we kind of go, you know, um, oh, boo-hoo, my childhood was so bad. But, you know, because often these these guys will try to minimize, sort of minimize their their, their legal consequences. And in some ways, I think sometimes make stuff up to sort of justify their actions in their own heads. Sure. And um, so you have to use caution, but I think, you know, the fact that his father was jailed and his mother left, it doesn't speak to a good childhood at all. No, no, it definitely does not. Uh, We'll see later that the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Denis Lorty was a corporal in the Canadian Armed Forces. After completing high school in Quebec, Lorty enlisted in the Canadian Forces in the late 1970s. He served in the logistics branch and was stationed at various military bases, including CFB Borden, CFB Valcartier, and CFB Halifax. Since 1983, he had been a supply technician at CFS CARP, close to Ottawa, where he worked Around the Diefenbunker there, yeah. Mm. That's the same one we mentioned in another episode. And his duties gave him access to firearms, ammunition, and various army equipment. He lived nearby with his wife, Lise, who was 17 on their wedding day on December 27, 1980. And she was only 18 when they had their first child, a son, the couple named Luke, who was born less than a year later. Lorty was excited to be a father and happy that he and his young wife had created a life together. It's incredible how things have changed. Mm. You know, when you hear married at 17 in in today's context. Sure. Well, actually, it was very normal, right? My my mom was married at 19 to my dad and had both my brother and I by the time she's 21. Yeah. Um, And just like a generation later, it's so different now. Yeah. I, I think back then, I think the average age for... The first time mom was like 24 and dads are 26. Now that's 32 and for women and 40 for guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mom. I'm almost skipping a generation, right? You're, people are almost their grandparents' age now mm-hmm. when they're having kids. Yeah. Denis and Lise welcomed their daughter, Mary Helene, in 1983. Lorty later explained that after her birth, he felt shut out of his family, as though his job was done and all the love in the home was between Lise and the kids. Denis felt unseen and grew angry and frustrated. He began lashing out. Denis later claimed it was then he was filled with dread, wondering if he were just like his father. Lorty ranted about the party Québécois, saying he wanted to destroy them, especially René Lévesque, their leader. Denis was enraged over the party Québécois advocating a francophone identity for Quebec, Lise became a target of Denis' abuse as she was a distant cousin of René Levesque's and she shared a last name with the party leader. Lise had only met René a few times during her childhood and was not close to him. And although Lise's surname was spelled without the accent aigu on the second E, like René's, Denis would belittle her for it. Language always seemed to be an issue in Denis Lorty's life, which was a source of deep frustration for him. Lise said Denis struggled with English. Anglophones couldn't understand him through his thick accent and strange manner of speaking. His French wasn't much better. According to Wolfram Burgond, as per Lise's observations, Denis experienced, quote, certain pronunciation difficulties. He would stammer and stumble over his words. Furthermore, it necessitated significant effort on his part to communicate effectively. He'd been given a removable upper denture in the months before the attack on the legislature. 
Denis hated the teeth and would take them out to eat. They were uncomfortable and exacerbated his speech issues, making him almost unintelligible at times. Denis took his frustrations out on Lise and the kids. When Luke was two years old, he stopped speaking and was taken to a speech therapist. Luke suddenly becoming nonverbal was a blow to Lorty, who wondered if his son's sudden silence was somehow his fault. Denis' daughter, Marie-Hélène, was also affected and began vomiting after she ate. All of this drove Denny to distraction. Lise was fed up with her husband's unpredictable and random violence and began divorce proceedings. Yeah, if, if one of your kids isn't talking and the other one's throwing up whenever she eats, it's not a good indication that it's a stable home life. Yeah, there's something going I on. I feel for those kids. Yeah, for sure. The month before Denis' attack on the legislature in April of 1984, during an appointment, Luke's speech therapist concluded that the boy's lack of speech was psychosomatic. The therapist said, quote, This child is under too much pressure. After his incarceration, Lise asked Denis if he'd beaten Luke when she wasn't around, and Denis admitted he had. At the beginning of May, Denis Lorty requested and was granted a few days' leave from May 5th to 7th. He claimed this was to settle his divorce from his wife. Lorty rented a car, and then the next day, although on leave, he used the pretext of being late for his work to return to the military base. There, he went into the vault, which housed the arms and ammunition. He stole two C-1 submachine guns, an Inglis pistol, a knife, and 400 rounds of ammunition, putting them into two huge sacks. A companion, unaware of what was in the heavy bags, helped him put these two packages in his car before leaving the military base. On Sunday, May 6, Denis set off for Quebec with weapons and belongings, contemplating a secluded life in a densely wooded park to hunt with the machine guns that he'd stolen. However, his plans changed when he picked up a hitchhiker, deviating from his path to ensure the hitchhiker reached his destination in Quebec City. As he drove, the idea of what he really wanted to do crystallized in his mind. Yeah, that seems like he's all over the place, but there, it was probably in the back of his head because you don't need a machine gun to go hunting. No, and I think maybe this is a bit of his... His altered history of... Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well... I wasn't really going to do it. Yeah, right? I can't say I was really planning this because, right. yeah, then that would make me look even more guilty. Yeah. After renting a room in Quebec City, Lorty decided he needed to do some reconnaissance. Wearing civilian clothes, he went on a guided tour of the National Assembly to get the lay of the land. Before leaving the legislature, he inquired about the schedule for the next day's sittings and public access to these. He obtained a map of the main parliamentary chamber, La Salon Bleu, which translates to English as the Blue Room. The next day, he went on a second group tour of the National Assembly, and he ended his day by buying a tape recorder and cassettes, three of which he used to record messages. They were intended for Padre Arsenault, military chaplain, for his wife, and the host of a radio station, Mr. Andre Arthur. At the beginning of the evening, Lorty went to the Citadel de Quebec to meet the Padre there. Father Arsenault being absent, Lorty left a box with the soldier on duty with instructions to give it to the Padre. After his night's sleep, Corporal Lorty put on his camouflage combat fatigues. If anyone asked, he explained his outfit by saying he was participating in exercises at Valcartier in the suburbs of Quebec. Then he mailed his wife the tape that he'd recorded for her and various personal objects, including his wedding ring. Lorty then went to the CJRP radio station to give on-air talent Andre Arthur the tape he had reserved for him. Unable to meet the host already on air, he left the cassette intended for Andre with one of the station attendants. According to an article on the case by Wolfram Bergon, at the reception area of the radio station, he told Andre Arthur's assistant, For you, I'm Mr. D, and handed her an envelope containing one of his three audio tapes. The envelope bore the name D. Lorty and instructions not to open it before 10 a.m. It also contained a social insurance number and a few illegible scribbles. The phrase, The Life of a Man, was written on the cassette, the tape contained menacing messages threatening the provincial government. The 45-minute recording strongly criticized the Parti Québécois and their pro-French language policies. 
Lortie's stammering voice proclaimed a long-awaited opportune moment. I have waited for just the right moment. It's at hand now. The government will be destroyed, including Premier René Lévesque, for doing, quote, so much wrong to the French-language people of Quebec and Canada. The Kingston Whig Standard printed a Canadian press partial transcript of Lorty's rants on the CJRP tape. Quote, what I am doing is not for me, but the world of the future and for the French language, said the tape. For me, it has a lot of meaning. No one will be able to stop me, not the police, not the army, because I am going to carry out a destruction, and then I will destroy myself. It will be a first in Canada. I would have attacked something more important like the Liberal Party in Ottawa, Lorty added. This is a very important point for me because my language is in Quebec and I don't want anything or anyone to destroy it. Speaking in a calm voice with frequent pauses, he added, Maybe I will hurt a lot of people, but what do you expect? To achieve something good, you have to destroy. But one thing I can tell you, I only have one life to live. I want to destroy the Parti Québécois. Do not put the blame on the Canadian Armed Forces. It's something I respect a lot. The Parti Québécois wants to have only one language in Quebec. And for what reason? They want to confine us to Quebec. They tell people not to go live elsewhere. Lévesque wants to have an independent Quebec, but he'll never succeed. Lorty said he would, quote, kill everyone in my path. End quote. I was talking to my husband about this, mm-hmm. and he was surprised right. that this guy was a Catholic French Canadian. Yeah. Um, and I, I said to him, like, that actually shows the complexity of the debate in, yeah. in Quebec at the time. Mm-hmm. I think the rest of Canada really simplified uh, the, 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 the politics in Quebec and wanting to leave as French in versus English or, was, yeah. or Catholic versus Protestant. I think there was a little bit of that. It was, it, that, that was never, um, sort of screaming from the headlines, but I think people felt that. And to have like a Francophone Catholic saying, I don't want like just one language or to leave shows that it was complex. Yeah. It was a little more nuanced than yeah. we were led to believe. Yep. CJRP later turned the tape over to the police at their request, but kept a partial copy of the recording. Denis was concerned about how he would be portrayed after his actions. On the tape, Denis directly addressed André Arthur. At one point, using a mixture of French and English, he demanded to remain nameless, saying, quote, and tell the world not to give me a surname, a nickname, the lunatic, whatever it is, end quote. After leaving the radio station, Lorty drove toward the Quebec Parliament on the Plains of Abraham, armed with the two C-1 submachine guns and his 9mm Inglis pistol. The Citadel de Quebec, also known as La Citadelle, is an active military facility and serves as the official secondary residence for the Canadian monarch, now King Charles III, and the Governor-General of Canada. It is situated atop Cap Diamant. This citadel houses the oldest military structure in Canada, and it's part of the fortifications surrounding Old Quebec City. The strategic significance of Cap Diamant was recognized by the French as early as 1608. Over time, the French and British established defensive fortifications on the site following their conquest of New France. The modern citadel was constructed between 1820 and 1850 to bolster the defense of Quebec City against potential American attacks. The British utilized the Citadel in 1871 when they officially transferred ownership to the Canadian government. According to its official website, the Citadel was recognized as a National Historical Site of Canada in 1980 and is part of the Historical District of Old Quebec, which was placed on UNESCO's World Heritage List in 1985. When Denis exited his car just after 9.40 a.m., he immediately unleashed a barrage of 9mm rounds from one of his C-1 submachine guns into the Parliament building's windows and around the grounds. This initial volley of shots injured no one, but it did send tourists, including children, scrambling for cover. Lorty had intended to enter the Assembly Chamber during a Parliamentary Committee session scheduled for 10 a.m. that morning. He believed that there would be many politicians present. He relied on timing the beginning of his attack based on the end of CJRP radio host Andre Arthur's segment, which was supposed to end at 10. 
Fortunately for the members of the provincial parliament, Andre Arthur concluded his broadcast 20 minutes earlier than usual on that day. This unforeseen circumstance prompted Lorty to enter the building and proceed to the assembly chamber while it was predominantly unoccupied. At 9.45 a.m., Denis Lorty, clad in his army commando attire and wielding his weapons, forcefully entered the National Assembly building through the entrance on Grand Allee Boulevard. Tragically, Lorty first shot a messenger, 54-year-old Camille LePage, resulting in her subsequent death. The barrage also severely injured a receptionist. Hastily making his way through the corridor to the speaker's gallery, the assailant proceeded to the first door, gaining access to Salon Bleu, the legislature's main chamber. Within the chamber, a committee of the assembly was preparing to discuss the chief electoral officer's budget estimates for the upcoming fiscal year. Lorty discharged more volleys of rounds, causing injuries to multiple individuals to tragically succumb to their wounds, 61-year-old husband, father, and military veteran George Boyer, a long-serving page who had dedicated several years to the National Assembly, and the other fatality was 57-year-old Roger LeFrancois, a page to the chief electoral officer. None of the dead or injured were elected officials. You know, this is... Uh, I don't want politicians to be shot. Right. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> even though I don't... I dislike all of yeah. them in every party. Right. But there's something that hurts wh- where the people that were killed, they they were just there doing their day jobs. They were just normal human beings doing right. their day yeah. job, right? Yep. Kind of makes it a bit sadder for me, just... Mm-hmm. These normal people getting on with their daily jobs. Yeah, exactly. Right? On a day trip, a group of school children were present in Le Salon Bleu and ducked for cover. Some laughed, not realizing the danger, but the seriousness sunk in quickly as they were safely ushered out a back door. Yikes, that could have been an awful situation. Oh, it could have been terrible. Group of school children being killed? Yeah, there's an armed gunman. With a machine gun? Yeah, two. Right. Right. And one a pistol. in each hand. Yeah. yeah. 400 rounds of ammunition. Yeah. And not to minimize the deaths of three people, but it could have been much more serious. Yeah. At the time of the incident, Quebec Premier Rene Levesque and his cabinet were scheduled to convene in the Salon Bleu later in the afternoon. However, some ministers happened to be having a late breakfast and they promptly barricaded themselves inside the legislature's restaurant for safety. Unfortunately, the assembly employees were left vulnerable and without protection. As he situated himself in the speaker's chair in the chamber, Lorty yelled, Où sont les députés? Je vais le tuer, which translates to, Where are the legislators? I'm going to kill them. Cameras had been set up in the chamber to record the parliamentary sessions. They were rolling as the events unfolded. CBC News later released an edited English-dubbed version of the harrowing video shot in Le Salon Bleu on May 8, 1984. The following quotes from the events in Le Salon Bleu that day are taken from the video transcript, a link to which you'll find in our show notes. Denis fired his machine gun into the seats in the chamber, behind which people were hiding. He shouted, I missed this shot, but your day will come, parasite. Shoot, shoot me, I'm ready. You sure are taking your goddamn time. During his ranting, Denis Lorty pulled out his denture as it appeared to impede his speech. Lorty looked at it, disgusted, rolled his eyes, and flung it away. The upper denture was later recovered by police on the floor of Salon Bleu. Sergeant-at-arms René-Marc Jalbert calmly and casually approached Lorty from Lorty's right, coming in through the door behind the speaker's chair. Jalbert had just arrived at work when he heard about the incident. He rushed toward the Salon Bleu, still wearing his beige overcoat and holding an unlit cigarette in his mouth. His presence initially startled Denis, who stood up menacingly. Jalbert seemed unflappable. Jalbert said, How are you? And Denis said, I'm going crazy, you understand that? Jalbert responds, Of course I do. Denis yells, I'm fed up. Jalbert calmly says, You know I'm an army man, just like you. And this sort of jars Denis... And he says, oh yeah? Although Lorty did fire his weapon a few more times, this compassionate and calm interaction, which continued over the next few hours, was the beginning of a successful diffusion of the events. Okay. This, so this was captured on television. Yes. 
it is a must watch. Yeah, I agree. Right? I was what, 14 at the time? I can't remember this because I was probably all wrapped up in my teenage life. Sure. Right. But Gelber is incredible. Yes. He's incredible. And it feels so weirdly Canadian in a way mm-hmm. because this guy's a machine gun and like Gelber just walks in in his overcoat with a cigarette and it's like, it's, it literally, it's like, hey, w- hey, what you doing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no SWAT team. There's no grenades. They were outside. Right, but he just starts talking and there's even a point where he shoots again, mm-hmm. but Gelbert doesn't even flinch. No. He, he just he just talks to him. I, I You've got to watch this, everyone. You've yeah. got to watch it. Yeah, I've shared the link in the show notes. If you don't watch it, you, you've... You're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, there's no gore or anything. It's just it's it's uh, the camera fixed on the on the speaker's chair, yeah. and it's just the two of them. It is harrowing. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like holy crap. Yeah, Gelbert, just the kahunas on that guy. Yeah, or the kahonis? Is it kahunas? Kahunas <laughs> is a different thing. Kahon- okay. Kahonis is okay. what you're trying to say. <laughs> Jalbert later spoke to the National Parliamentary Review about gaining Lortie's trust through speaking about their shared military service and maintaining a respectful tone when speaking to him. In the article, Jalbert recalled, quote, When I saw him, he was dressed in a military uniform and I tried to introduce myself to him. I told him I was too a military man. If he let me, I said I would take out my armed forces discharge card. He let me and I took out my ID card to show him. I introduced myself and asked him, seeing as I showed you my identification card, could you show me your identification card too so that I would know who I'm talking to? He said yes and showed me his ID. That's when I saw that he was a Mr. Denis Lorty. Jalbert said at no time did he feel like he was a hostage to Denis Lorty. Jalbert said, quote, It was not a matter of being a hostage. I managed to convince him to follow me to my office, and when he got inside my office, I told him, I don't want you pointing those weapons at me. He agreed to that. He said, there are people in the National Assembly. At that time, I did not know that he had already killed somebody. I did not know that there was still somebody in the chamber. He was the one that told me. I said to him, listen, I want to negotiate with you. I really want to have a talk with you and help you, but we're going to do it in my office. In the meantime, before going, you must promise me that the pages that are still in the chamber will be allowed to go. He told me, yes. I said, do you promise? He did. Then he raised his gun, and I said to the pages, all those who are in the chamber, leave right now. Three pages left. And when they had gone, the only person left was a policeman in the gallery with a walkie-talkie. End quote. Even though the Salon Bleu conversation between Lorty and Jalbert continued for 24 minutes before they exited and went to Jalbert's office, police had not fully evacuated the building. When Jalbert and Lorty entered his office, Jalbert was surprised to see his secretary still at her desk. I hope she got a pay rise. Right? <laughs> just sitting there typing away. Hey, yeah, I heard the gunshots. Just still doing my day job. Just doing my thing. Craziness. Oh, really, really crazy. <laughs> I can't just imagine. Sitting, can you imagine? Just, you know, it's, did, she must have known what's going on, but she's sitting there like, Oh, here's desk. a man with a gun. Yeah, I'm just going to keep doing my work. Well, at time, there was no cell phone, so Renee couldn't text her and say, I'm coming into the office with an armed gunman. Right, but she must have been able to hear the... Yep. Oh, for sure. Shots, right? Well, it was a floor away. Okay. But still. It's just craziness. Yeah. <laughs> Gelbert calmly introduced Lorty to his secretary, and Lorty leaned down to kiss her cheek. Mr. Gelbert commended Lorty for his gentlemanly behavior and brought him into his office. Once inside, Mr. Gelbert requested that Lorty place his submachine gun on the desk. Lorty did. Mr. Jalbert said later that Lorty preferred to surrender to the military police rather than Quebec Provincial Police, stating that he'd suggested the option to Lorty after a lengthy discussion. Mr. Jalbert called the base at Valcartier to speak with Colonel Armand Roy to explain the situation and request two military police officers. Lorty agreed to surrender to the military police after speaking briefly with Colonel Roy. During Lorty's phone conversation with Colonel Waugh, he surprised Mr. Jalbert by revealing a 9mm revolver from his pocket. Lorty proceeded to load the pistol and held it in his hand, which made Jalbert slightly uncomfortable, as he feared a potential accident could occur. The safety catch was off. Jalbert questioned Lorty about the presence of bombs or grenades. 
Lorty denied having any, and Jalbert requested proof. He asked Lorty to stand up and open his shirt to check for grenades. Lorty complied, and Mr. Jalbert further asked if he could search him. Lorty approached with his revolver in hand, and Mr. Jalbert conducted a thorough search of his legs, starting at the bottom and moving upward. He then requested Lorty to turn around, ensuring the gun was not pointing towards him, and searched him from behind, inspecting his back. Jalbert convinced Lorty to place that gun on the table as well so they could continue their conversation in safety. After determining that Lorty did not have any bombs or grenades on his person, Jalbert inquired about the presence of bombs or explosive in Lorty's car. Lorty responded that the only items in his car were his backpack and personal belongings. Jalbert shared that Lorty expressed remorse for the havoc he'd caused. Lorty had tears in his eyes, prompting Mr. Jalbert to encourage him to let the emotions out and cry if it would provide some relief. Mr. Jalbert assured Lorty that they were alone and he wouldn't disclose anything. Lorty then cried for approximately a minute or two, after which he regained composure and appeared noticeably calmer. As Jalbert and Lorty talked, the building was evacuated and a SWAT team set up outside waiting for a possible opportunity to apprehend their suspect. There was no further violence. At 2.15 p.m., the incident ended as the gunman peacefully surrendered to law enforcement officers. The Quebec Provincial Police, the Quebec City Police Force, and the Security Service of the National Assembly were involved in securing his surrender. More after a quick break. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this? My biggest thought is what if? Yeah. What if he had been there on time Mm -hmm. and killed René Lévesque? Right. And other politicians. Would separation have actually happened? Yeah. Would there have been a blowback? Would Quebec have actually separated? Yeah. What if he had killed those kids? You know, I'm not minimizing this. Like three wonderful human beings Mm -hmm. died. Yep. But... This could have had huge consequences for the country. Yeah. Right? And and actually, and this goes to show, you know, people that kill politicians, what they don't understand, it, it usually adds fire to the flames mm-hmm. of whatever that politician was. You've was, written was here the for. word martyr. Yeah. Yeah. They would have martyred him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what happened to uh, JFK. Yeah. He's murdered and becomes this martyr. He... He was an okay president. He was doing his thing. Mm. But it was his his murder that sort of vaulted him yeah. to a status he may not have acquired had he yeah, been, and, a, been able to remain. And then all the following candidates, right? Mm-hmm. But we'll leave RFK Jr. out of it because that guy's out of his mind. Colette Lorty, Denny's mother, spoke about her surprise at her son's actions in an exclusive interview with a reporter for television station at CKTM-TV in Trois-Rivières. He is very kind, she said, very docile. I don't know why he did this thing. She also denied problems in the marriage between Denis and Lise. Neighbors told reporters that Lorty had been very helpful and very quiet, normal. Others had only seen him coming and going. To them, Denis was not the crazed guy later seen in the video taken during the event firing his C-1 submachine gun in Le Salon Bleu. During a shared funeral service in Quebec City on Friday, May 11, 1984, journalists photographed the coffins draped in the Quebec flag, bearing the remains of the three National Assembly employees who tragically lost their lives in the shooting rampage only three days before. They rested solemnly in front of their grieving families. The service was a near-hour-long Catholic high mass with Reverend Roland Boisevere, the parish priest, officiating. A strong police presence at the event, 20 undercover officers inside and 10 uniformed outside the church, were there to protect the families and dignitaries attending the service. Seated in the designated area of pews to the left of the families were Premier René Lévesque, Opposition Leader Gérard Lévesque, Lieutenant Governor Gilles Lamontagne, Senator Marshall Asselin, representing the Federal Senate, and local MPs Gerard Duquette and Louis Duclos, representing the House of Commons. The presence of John Turner, the Speaker of the Ontario Legislature, was notable as the sole representative in mourning from outside Quebec. 
Also among the dignitaries, René Jalbert, the sergeant-at-arms of the assembly, was in attendance. By then, he'd been credited as being the hero of the day after persuading the gunman to surrender. René Marc Jalbert's courageous deeds undoubtedly averted a greater loss of life. In recognition of his bravery, he received the Cross of Valor, which, as mentioned previously, is Canada's highest civilian bravery award. The prestigious honor was awarded to him on July 15, 1984, and the award ceremony was held on November 9, 1984, at Rideau Hall, where the Governor General, Jean Sauvé, presented him with the award. The text of the award citation follows, quote, In a rare display of cool-headedness and courage, René Jalbert, sergeant-at-arms at the Quebec National Assembly, subdued a man who had killed three people and wounded 13 more on the morning of 8 May 1984. The man had entered a side door of the National Assembly building and immediately opened fire with a submachine gun. Moments later, he climbed the main staircase toward the assembly chamber, known as the Blue Room, shooting repeatedly, and then burst into the chamber. As bullets peppered the wall, Mr. Jalbert entered the Blue Room and with icy calm convinced the man to allow several employees to leave the premises. He then invited the heavily armed man to his downstairs office in effect setting himself up as a hostage while removing the man from the scene. At extreme personal risk, but with unflinching authority, Mr. Jalbert spent four hours persuading the man to surrender to police. The audacity of this retired major of the Royal 22nd Regiment, a Second World War and Korean War veteran, almost certainly prevented a higher death toll. End quote. Yeah, wow, he did World War II and the Korean War. Yeah, this, this guy so deserved this award. <laughs> there is no way he did not. <laughs> like if anyone does, if yeah. when you watch that, he does. And you, I've watched a bunch of interviews with him after yeah. this whole thing. And he didn't consider himself a hero. He was just like, I just knew what I, I had a job to do and I talked to this it, guy. And those are always the heroes. It's true. Right? <laughs> yeah, the people who don't think they're and then heroes. I did this man. Yeah, that's the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's so cool. Interesting cat. After his arrest, Denis Lorty was held and arraigned and pleaded not guilty to the murders and attempted murders he was charged with. As it was impossible to deny that Denis had been the one who'd pulled the trigger, his attorneys began to work on an insanity defense claiming Denis diminished responsibility due to mental illness. That old chestnut. But, you know, I don't think his elevator went all, to the, all the way to the top, to coin a phrase. Yes. But, you know, whether he was responsible for what he did, I do believe he was. Mm -hmm. At the behest of his legal team, Lorty was interviewed by three psychiatrists, doctors Mayu, Roy, and Tremblay. They testified at his trial. Dr. Mayu testified, quote, It appears to me that Mr. Lorty was ill, that his mind was no longer under its control at the time of the commission of the actions, end quote. Mayu concluded that Lorty had paranoid schizophrenia and that it was during a psychotic episode that Lorty had orchestrated his crime. Lorty, Mayu said, firmly believed that he was carrying out divine instructions. Dr. Waugh said, quote, I conclude that when the events happened there, he was in psychosis, which indicates a significant alteration of the experienced reality. Dr. Trombley concurred, saying, quote, so that's the gist of what my opinion is, that the actions committed are the fruit of a mental illness, end quote. The Crown's counter-evidence was given by doctors Duguay and Paul Hoos, who had also interviewed Lorty. Dr. Duguay said, quote, So for me, Mr. Lorty's problem is a personality disorder, which lies between the problem of neurosis and psychosis, therefore at the border of these two families of illness, except that the subject remains aware of what is happening to him and therefore takes very good account of his actions, end quote. Dr. Paul Hoos testified, quote, I think Mr. Lorty has character problems and of personality with an impulsive tendency to act. It's not psychiatric illness, end quote. In 1985, Denis Lorty was initially convicted of first-degree murder. However, a new trial was subsequently ordered by the Quebec Court of Appeal due to errors made by the trial judge in instructing the jurors on how to assess the testimony provided by psychiatrists during the case. A new trial was ordered. However, before it began in 1987, Lorty changed his plea and pleaded guilty to reduced charges of second-degree murder. Hailed as a humble hero for the rest of his life, René-Marc Jalbert died at age 74 in 1996. 
In 2006, a street in Quebec City was named after him. Lorty was released on day parole in 1995. Aged 36, he'd been undergoing psychiatric treatment at a minimum security prison near Montreal, where he was serving his life sentence without parole eligibility for 10 years. The National Parole Board officials determined that Lorty was no longer a threat to society and would be eligible for parole in six months. Lorty had to abide by specific rules as part of his release conditions. These included spending each night at the halfway house from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. He was also obliged to inform parole supervisors of his whereabouts at all times and was limited to a radius of 40 kilometers from the house. The families of Lorty's victims expressed dissatisfaction with the perceived leniency of his punishment. Some believed he should have faced execution a penalty that could not be applied due to Canada's abolition of the death penalty in 1976. You know where I'm going to go with this. Yeah, you don't like the death penalty and neither do I. I feel for them. Yep. Good, but again, I've said this, I don't want to live in a culture of vengeance, right? Yeah. Um, State-sanctioned murder Yeah. Um, is vengeance, uh, not justice. In the summer of 1996, Lorty's ex-wife, Lise Levesque, expressed her fears to Canadian press reporters at a book launch in which she told her story to author Dominique Fournier. The book is written in French and is titled J'étais la femme de Tilleux, or I was the killer's wife in English. Translated roughly from French, the rear dust jacket of the book reads in part, quote, Everyone in Quebec remembers that terrible May 8, 1984. That day the Quebec Parliament was the scene of a horrifying drama. A madman armed with a submachine gun, Corporal Denis Lorty, burst into it in the middle of the day, aiming to kill ministers and deputies. But his attempt to, quote, clean up the place, as he says himself, fails because he showed up too early for the question period to bring together those he wanted to eliminate. In their place, those who happened to be in the shooter's path fell under the bullets. How can one explain this act of madness from a seemingly trouble-free man? Nearly 12 years after the tragedy, the story of Lise Levesque takes you into the life of the young Lorty couple at the time when Denis is subtly preparing his coup. This story also shows how Lise overcame the tragedy that marked her life. End quote. They haven't translated that book into English, but I really wish they could because I would love to read it. At the book launch, Levesque claimed that she still feared her ex-husband, but it was more important for her to share her experience. Lise said, quote, I don't want to have to hide anymore. For me, this book is a way to break the shame of silence, end quote. She continued thoughtfully, quote, Today I see Denis as a human being. I feel a lot for him. However, I have some serious questions. Eight months before he was released, he wasn't considered fit for freedom. Then he's out. It's not up to me to judge, but I'd like to understand. Innocent people were killed. The day that someone can assure me he's cured, I'll stop being afraid that he'll have a relapse. End quote. The third cassette recorded by Lorty on the night before his rampage, intended for Lee's, was intercepted by the police and remained unheard by her for several years. When she eventually listened to its contents, she discovered a recording lasting approximately 20 minutes, filled with declarations of love and moments of silence that seemed to form a farewell message. Although Dennis Lorty did not explicitly reveal his plans, he expressed fear of himself and acknowledged his potential for great danger, stating, quote, Before they kill me, I'll have killed a lot. End quote. At the time of the tragic events, Levesque was 21 years old and a mother to a son and daughter. While visiting her parents in Quebec City in 1984, she unexpectedly heard Lorty's voice on a radio broadcast, which deeply shook her. She recalled trembling uncontrollably, unable to fathom that Denis, had committed such an act. Lise Levesque, who has since remarried and had two more children, spoke about the judgment and rejection she faced from her family and social circle. She understood the burden of being despised and misunderstood as people assumed that because Denis had committed murder, she must share a similar disposition. Even to this day, she continues to receive threats as the haunting story of her past experiences remains a part of her life that can't be forgotten. Leave her alone she didn't do it she didn't do it no she was in an abusive relationship right she got away from the guy right mm -hmm. um that's so unfair to her D totally 
It's so unfair to her. To, yeah. I know people who have been involved with people who've done really bad things. And it's easy for us to all say, well, she had to have known or she is responsible or blah, blah, blah. But really? It's not the case. Grow up. No, until you're in that position. <laughs> Just grow up. Yeah. Denis Lorty received full parole in July 1996, remarried and keeps to himself somewhere in Quebec, having worked at a convenience store for a time. We don't know what else he's done. As he was sentenced to life, he is expected to regularly report to a parole officer, which he has reportedly done without fail. Parole officials have publicly stated that they still keep tabs on Denis Lorty. As you would. Yeah, I mean, this story. It, it, but yeah, like I liked what you had to say in the middle uh, right. where we're talking about. Um, what could have been. Yeah, what if. It could have changed Canadian history, yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. You know? Could have, and uh, it probably would have. Yeah, fair I mean, yeah. remember how heightened everything was at that time? Mm -hmm. Right? Like it was, we were in a quagmire back then. Well, Yeah. <laughs> There's still a bit of a quagmire around other things now. But yeah, we, well, we, we always seem to need a one, at least one good quagmire, don't we? Yeah, Canadians <laughs> love a good quagmire. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 275, the 1984 Quebec National Assembly shooting. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, let's have a listen to our very first voicemail this week. We have two. Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Linnea. I, uh, I listen to you guys probably every day. I've re-listened to a bunch of your episodes. Um... I literally wait for the day you guys release new episodes. It's my it's my favorite podcast. Um, I don't even know what to say. I just wanted to call and say how much I love you guys um, and how much you've really kind of helped me through a lot of anxiety and, you know, depression. I really love your guys' voices and just how real you two are. Um, I grew up in White Rock, so I'm, you know, from from your neck of the woods and I don't know. It's 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 really nice to listen to people that are from where I'm from and just kind of talk about real things. And yeah, uh, there there's one thing I kind of wanted to bring up. One story. Uh, it's I don't know how really big or how much information there is about it, but um, I grew up with a kid in White Rock, uh, Hudson Brooks, and he was um, he was involved in a shooting with the cops on right in front of Semi Amu uh, Library. Uh, with the cop shop in uh, South Surrey. So um, it was really traumatic and there was a lot of marches for it. And um, yeah, there wasn't much, much closure and it was just a really sad incident that involved a lot of people in White Rock. And yeah, I don't know. Just wanted to bring it up and see if maybe you guys could do a, like a short, little short thing on it or something if you wanted to, if it was interesting for you guys. But uh, yeah, I will let you go now and, Thanks again for everything um, that you do, even though you don't know you do it, but you do it. And yeah. All right. Go shit in your hat. Bye. Uh, well, thanks, Linnea. Thank I, you. I looked that up as soon as she started talking about it. And then uh, I vaguely recall it because it happened like blah, 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 uh, eight years ago, I believe. Okay. Yes. Eight years ago. And uh, yeah, it, uh, the Surrey RCMP officer who fatally shot 20-year-old Hudson Brooks in South Surrey apologized to the young man's mother uh, after a coroner's inquest. Okay. So, I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting story, so it might be one that we would want to tackle. I'm not entirely sure. It looks very sad as far as everything that I've read in the brief few seconds here. Uh, but I do recall, like I say, I okay. recall it briefly. But uh, but yeah, thanks, Linnea, for the tip. And it is something that we'll probably look at a little more deeply. So, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's listen to another voicemail. This looks like it might come from someone local. Hey there. Uh, my name's Taylor. I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta. Um, I've picked up on my podcast, so I just recently listened to the uh, episodes about the Hollow Man, uh, and you guys were going on about 
being safe when internet dating, which of course is a great idea. And I thought I'd call in and uh, tell you a funny story about uh, a date I went to one time from online. Um, to this day, I tell everyone it was the first date I've ever been on. But um, So I did everything right. I texted the guy for a bit first, and we go to meet, and I'm like, let's meet in a public place. My first ever online date, and we go meet at a mall. Um, and we go into the mall. Everything's going good. He buys me coffee. And all of a sudden, he lifts my leg up into his lap from the back of my knee and pulls my shoe off and looks at me and goes, I just like feet. I don't remember exactly what I said, but i pretty sure I just repeated the word, nope, nope, nope. The whole way out of that mall, I just stood up and left. Um, now I can look back and think it's hilarious. But it's, you know, just thought I'd call, tell you that story, and see if you can have a little laugh at my expense, I guess. Anyway, have a good day. Bye. So she noped her way all the way out of the mall. Yeah. Uh, was was it Quentin Tarantino that you, <laughs> that you were meeting with at the mall? Because he's got a foot fetish. You would think if somebody was into internet dating, part of your profile... Would include your fetish, or you will work up to it. Well, no, I would. I would expect. No, well, if you if you if going, it's internet dating, if you're going on a date, right? Like everyone has some sort of fetish, right? right? And you kind of work up to it. But okay, work up to it by work up to telling her about it, or just, yeah, work up to exploring yeah. and talking, and then going get to know them as human beings because. You know, if you're dating, you know, it's just the foot isn't going to, like, keep the relationship going. Well, maybe in this guy's mind it would. <laughs> maybe it would. It's funny because Taylor's a podiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> a podiatrist. Of yeah. course, Taylor's a I wanna, podiatrist. I want to know if she put her shoe back on or if she was running through the just, mall holding her shoe. <laughs> or just left the guy there with her shoe <laughs> in his hand. Take the shoe. And he's like, I'm not a shoe finishist. I'm a foot finishist. She's yeah, like, dude. nope. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that that's a that's an odd first five minute meeting. Well, yeah, if but like I say, if that is the thing that you are really into, well, that is the opportunity of online. I guess you're right, right? Yeah, is I'm just gonna put it all out here because somebody else might be really into having their feet (laughs) worshipped. Yeah, or licked or whatever. Right, exactly. Like, come worship my feet, and then I'm into feet. And the two can swipe right, and all is all is great. Oh God, nobody'd be into my feet. They big. I, I have Hobbit feet. They're like <laughs> flat and wide. <laughs> I literally and look at those, Mike. Look and at they're them. smelly. Are they? A little bit. Yeah. I know. I need the spray, but look at them. They're horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a foot guy, so I'm. I'm. I spend most of my life in my bare feet. If people want to know why, yeah. why Mike can see my. <laughs> <laughs> I've got bare feet too, but my feet are also terrible. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's it for voicemails this week. Oh boy, yeah. If you need, if you really, really are into feet and you need feet, tell the people in your dating profile, I need to see your feet. I'm into noses. You are. And actually. the thing about dating profiles is you get a picture of the person's face, right? Hopefully. Well, I mean, not that I've been on one for a long time, but yeah. Yeah, and neither have I. <laughs> uh, I've never. I've never done that. You've never been on a... Nope. Nope. Really? Really. I, I want to, like, get you on the couch and talk to you like a therapist and ask you why. <laughs> no. Please don't. I'll be, I'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. I'm, that, that's what they all say. It's, <laughs> it's not something I need to look into. <laughs> that's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or... 1877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, we've got a couple of patrons this week. First up, from Naramata, British Columbia, we have Alicia Nori. Alicia Nori. Hello, Alicia. And what does Alicia do up there? In Naramata. How do you spell Naramata? N-A-R-A-M-A-T-A. Naramata. Great. Yes. 
She's a professional spelling bee person. Oh, so that's why you asked me how to spell something. Yes. I gotcha. She has won. <laughs> there you go. Many times. Uh, wow. I used to be good at spelling, but it seems like the older I get, the worse I get. And I, the worse I get at typing as well. So it's... Uh, I'm still good at spelling, but I'm bad at typing because I just try to pump the ideas out. Ah, well, there you go. Uh, next... From Sarnia, Ontario. Sarnia. We have Tony Kamara. Tony. <laughs> Tony. I know Tony. Oh, do you? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. So what does Tony do there in Sarnia, Ontario, Matt? In Sarnia, Ontario? Yeah. Um, well, I kind of know what he does anyway, but... Well, let, no, let, uh, let's gonna... make something up for him. He, he defends the border. Oh, he's a border defender. Yeah. With a slingshot or? Yeah, a slingshot just over the water. Sure. <laughs> just bounces, just skips. <laughs> he hopes it hits something relevant. I didn't realize he's in Sarnia. Well, there you go. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Tony. Um, how do you know Tony? Um, Through life? School. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, like the hood. The hood. Yeah, the southwestern Ontario, Strathroy, all of that stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. I there's a lot of uh, a lot of people I stay in touch with. I really like social media just for that specific reason because I've been able to stay in touch with people who yeah. I lost touch with. For Tony years. Tony joined the Umberyard as well. Oh, did he? Yep. Oh, that's nice. And now he's uh. He's become a patron, so... Patreon! Thank you, guys! We do appreciate we that. We 100% do. And um, thank you for taking some of your slingshot money and giving it to us. Nah. Uh, next we have, as far as... Okay, so that's it for patrons. Okay. But next we have, as far as donut money goes, we have Mia Boulanger, and she's from, from Manitouaj. Manitouaj. Ontario, Manitouage, Ontario. Manitouage. Manitouage? Yeah. Okay, Manitouage. I've never had to pronounce that before. M Mia says, go back, got back into the show after being too busy to listen. Just as amazing as I remember. I can't wait to force my parents to listen on the drive to uni, bachelors of education. Have a great day and give Steve a pat for me. P.S. If you're ever looking to do another war episode, Check out the Nays Park POW camp. Absolutely wild. Great. Okay, that we sounds will. interesting. We'll check that out. I wonder where she's driving to uni with her parents. I don't know. Somewhere in Ontario. Manitouage. Away from Manitouage. Mm, I'm going to say she's studying business at Western. Well, she said a, a bachelor's of education. Oh, did she? Yes. Oh, I didn't hear that bit. I bet she's, stu she's studying Bachelor's of Education at University of Toronto. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'm studying my BED, too, at night when oh. I go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you thank so you much, so much. Mia. And hi, Mia's parents. Hi, Mia's parents. Drive who carefully. Are listening. Well, they're probably Me. not listening now because oh. they will have done that drive by the time this airs. No. When do people go back to school? I don't know. Okay. It depends. Is she going for the summer session, Matthew? Are you ready for the summer? Matthew makes lots of assumptions. Assumptions. Are you ready for the good times? <laughs> which which movie was that from? Caddyshack. And I, a whole lot of fooling around. I can't remember. Do you remember Caddyshack? Uh, it's probably highly inappropriate now. I can't actually remember what happened, oh yeah. but it was so funny. I do like... Caddyshack. It is quite good. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. 
And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. Is uh, that it? That is it. Uh, that went by fast. Well, it did. Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because there are already enough bad apples. Well, yeah. Anyway. Bye. Bye.